Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Abigail Dumas about her new book, Divided Bodies, Lyme Disease, Contested Illness, and Evidence-Based Medicine. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I wondered if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a medical anthropologist. Um, I received my PhD in sociocultural anthropology from Yale, and I'm now an assistant professor in the Department of Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Michigan. Um, I guess most days find me thinking and teaching about gender and contested illness and infectious disease and also environmental health. Um, A few of my favorite courses that I teach Um, our gender and contested illness. I also teach a course called the Anthropology of Infectious Disease, and more recently, Feminist Theoretical Perspectives in Gender and Health. Um, My department has a relatively new and trailblazing uh, major and minor in gender and health, and I I love being part of its curriculum. And then I'm also a core faculty member of the Global Feminisms Project at the University of Michigan, and this project collects and archives interviews with feminist scholars and activists from around the world. Wow, that's a lot. That's exciting. Um, and so how? So, um, tell us a little bit about how you came to write Divided Bodies. You mentioned before we started recording that you've been working on this project in one form or another for over a decade. That's right. So um, I think as often happens in anthropology, I stumbled on it somewhat serendipitously. Um, in my case, uh, through a Google search, um, in the somewhat exploratory hopes of finding a local medical issue that also had compelling um, political and sociocultural dimensions. Um, at the time, I didn't know anything about Lyme disease. And the first hit that I got was actually a news story about then Connecticut Attorney General Richard, um, Richard Blumenthal's um, investigation into the Infectious Disease Society of America's a clinical guideline writing process for Lyme disease. So I followed that thread and here we are 11 years later. Um, I often think about how in the end that chance search uh, one afternoon um, opened the door to really a decade long, like you mentioned, attempt to make sense of the broader relationship between contested illness and evidence-based medicine. Okay. Well, let's, let's start with a really basic question then. What well, what seems like a basic question, what is Lyme disease? Right. So Lyme disease is an infection. It's caused by a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, and this is transmitted transmitted by the bite of a tick called Ixodes scapularis, or the black-legged tick. It's commonly called the deer tick. Um, yeah. Okay. And how is that contested? Right. That seems pretty straightforward. Um, uh, but its cons- its contestation really hinges on uh, whether the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi 
can persist beyond standard antibiotic treatment in the form of what's called chronic Lyme disease. Um, since Lyme's discovery in Lyme, Connecticut in 1982, um, disagreement over chronic Lyme disease has um, resulted in what is often described as Lyme's two camps. So on one side of the divide, uh, proponents of Lyme's mainstream standard of care argue that Lyme is pretty easily diagnosed and treated, um, and they don't recognize the biological basis of chronic Lyme disease or persistence of active infection beyond standard antibiotic treatment. Um, mainstream physicians, for this reason, often describe chronic Lyme disease as a medically unexplained illness, and this term has and biomedical practice often been used interchangeably with somatoform disorder. On the other side of the divide, um, proponents of the self-described Lyme literate standard of care, uh, they argued that diagnostic tests are unreliable and that chronic Lyme disease is a result of um, persistent and active infection and that it should be treated with extended courses of um, antibiotics. So, um, like other contested illnesses whose biological um, reality is contested, um, and this includes chronic fatigue syndrome and multiple chemical sensitivity, um, among others, chronic Lyme disease is also perceived to be more common among women and particularly affluent white women. And how has evidence-based medicine made the disease more controversial or, or heightened the this sort of conflict around um, defining it? Great question. So I think before I talk about um, how evidence-based medicine has made Lyme disease more controversial, which is really sort of the heart of my book, I think it might be helpful to clarify what I mean by contested illness. So this term has often been used by sociologists, um, particularly Phil Brown and those affiliated with the former contested illness research group at Brown University. Um, and it's been used to describe bodily conditions where there is dispute um, over environmental causation. So the environmental dimension here is important. Um, more recently, anthropologist Joe Dumit um, has also described these contested illnesses as, quote, illnesses you have to fight to get. Um, and he suggested that they're sort of broadly characterized by five features. One is chronicity. Um, the second is biomentality or the assumption um, by biomedical practitioners that patients' physical symptoms are actually manifestations of psychological disorder. Uh, the third is therapeutic diversity, so a range of therapeutic interventions, both conventional and complementary um, and alternative medical therapies. Uh, the fourth is cross-linkage, so the idea that there is similarity in symptoms across contested illnesses and that they can overlap and perceive, be perceived to overlap. Um, and the fifth is legal explosivity, right? Because they're controversial, they're often um, legally explosive. In my own work, I build on this, um, but I describe contested illness as any bodily condition whose biological basis is disputed. Um, in doing this, my aim is, on one hand, to expand the term's reach beyond environmental causation, um, but I also... Uh, want to emphasize the importance of these illnesses' relationship to evidence-based medicine itself. So I'm less concerned with causation or the effects of contestation or really the defining features than with the conditions of possibility that produce medically unexplained illness as a diagnostic category, sort of broadly within an evidence-based medicine framework. So getting back to the question in my book, one of the central questions is, 
why in an era of evidence-based medicine has the systematic production and really standardization of evidence made contested illnesses more contested? That is, you know, why has evidence-based medicine amplified rather than diminished disagreement related to contested illness, which was the, the hope of evidence-based medicine? Um, many inside and outside the medical arena regularly use evidence-based medicine as a term. It's even perceived to be interchangeable with um, biomedicine or sometimes uh, medicine itself. But I think less well-known um, is the fact that evidence-based medicine is actually a relatively recent institutional feature of biomedicine that emerged in the late 80s and early 90s. And the attempt was, of course, to standardize clinical care. Um, to do this, it first promoted the use of clinical guidelines, which are central um, to the controversy over Lyme disease. And it also created a now familiar hierarchy of scientific evidence. And this hierarchy is organized according to probability of bias. So at the top of this hierarchy, you have the objective evidence of randomized control trials. And at the bottom, you have the more quote unquote subjective evidence of expert opinion. Um, like, like anthropology. Abby. That, that's, <laughs> that's right. At the bottom of the hierarchy. Um, <laughs> So evidence-based medicine uh, is also structurally manifested, probably less known, um, and what are called evidence-based practice centers. These were created by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is part of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in 1997. Um, and I think the last time I checked, there were about 12 of these across the country. So in total, with all these features, evidence-based medicine has really come to formalize the importance of as I mentioned, objective over subjective evidence in the diagnosis of disease, um, so that illnesses that present with more symptoms, which are uh, described as subjective markers of disease and the new signs, which are considered to be objective markers of disease, really bring out epistemic differences within biomedical practice over the extent to which these symptoms can be used to substantiate and explain the biological reality of illness. So, that's a long way of saying that my answer to the question, why has evidence-based medicine made contested more contested is on one hand, it's furthered these illnesses by um, their marginality um, by category, categorizing them sort of formally as medically unexplainable. The term medically unexplained, um, medically unexplained illness seems to have first appeared in 1980, right around the same time that um, evidence-based medicine was beginning to gain momentum. Um, at the same time that it's also had the somewhat unintended consequence of amplifying differences in practice and opinion um, by what I suggest is providing sort of a platform of legitimacy in which all individuals can make claims to medical truth. So it's really opened up a new space in which a range of truths about contested illness get to count. And that sort of relates to the approach that you use to, to represent Lyme in, in the book and to, um, to really the way that um, divided bodies sort of intersects with the history of medicine. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the genealogical approach that you use to, to sort of trace Lyme's recent history? Sure, that's right. Um, you know, I was attracted to this project because it was controversial. I found that compelling. Um, I didn't realize until I started the project just how controversial it is. Um, and because of its controversy, I knew early on once I stepped foot in the field that my approach to both collecting data about and representing Lyme was going to be 
critically important. Um, so my methods uh, included sort of this staple ethnographic suite of participant observation and unstructured and semi-structured interviews. So over the course of a year and a half um, between 2010 and 2011, uh, the participation, um, the participant observation included shadowing physicians on either side of the standard of care divide. Um, and I also attended patient support group meetings. I traveled to scientific laboratory and public health meetings. I went to fundraising events and scientific conferences. Um, and then uh, in addition to hundreds of informal interviews, I also conducted 145 formal interviews with patients, physicians, and scientists, but also uh, health officials, uh, politicians, and patient advocates. Um, as my field work progressed um, and I developed a better understanding of the heightened polarization that characterizes the Lyme world, um, I began to think of my ethnographic engagement as what I call quantum ethnography. So it's inspired, of course, by the physics term quantum mechanics, and it's, uh, you know, <laughs> simplifying a complex idea, but the idea that one thing can be in two or more places at once, right? So um, instead of a spatial practice, like the more familiar multi-sided ethnography, quantum ethnography for me was a conceptual one um, that required that no matter who whom I was speaking with, um, I fully and somewhat simultaneously inhabited every perspective of which I was aware. Um, this methodological practice came to be linked to my um, represent, representational practice because it enabled an analysis um, that really inhabited Lyme's multiplicity of meanings and uh, allowed them to sort of be held in productive tension. Um, so, you know, my goal with this project from the outset um, was never to offer a definitive judgment about chronic Lyme disease, despite hopes that it might. Um, and this is consistent with the fact that as an anthropologist, I'm less interested in knowledge as something that is um, and more interested in knowledge as it is understood and as practiced and perceived to be by the patients, physicians, and scientists that I spend time with. Um, so this approach it can be called, whether it's uh, knowledge as practice or constructivist um, or genealogical, as you mentioned, it's sort of at its root fundamentally explanatory and descriptive and not normative. Um, Didier Fassin, his article, The Endurance of Critique, writes that genealogy is identification of what counts for true and false in a given world and a given moment. And I think uh, that nicely captures how I tried to represent Lyme disease in my book. So to take something that seems like a really obvious question, what is Lyme disease, right? <laughs> that we started with mm -hmm. and, and then show um, how many, show, show it from different perspectives. Um, I, so once, once you've sort of, laid out um, your approach and your subject, then you you move into talking about um, Lyme disease from the perspective of um, prevention, from the perspective of patients' experiences, from the perspective of, of the people who treat it. Um, let's let's start by talking about prevention. So one of the main risks of acquiring Lyme is exposure to nature, and it tends to be more common in affluent suburban neighborhoods or sort of semi-rural vacation destinations. What are some of the most common strategies for preventing Lyme disease? So that's right. Lyme disease um, disproportionately affects those who live in areas that um, deer, 
small rodents. And also, like I mentioned, ticks prefer to inhabit. So these are, like you mentioned, suburbs um, or more specifically areas on the periphery of forested land. They're often um, also known as transitional zones. Um, interestingly, uh, for a, a really controversial project of all issues related to Lyme disease, prevention um, is probably the least controversial. And so to prevent tick bites, um, people in Lyme endemic areas and across the standard care divide, um, they often just use the whole kitchen sink. Uh, so foremost among these and probably more most familiar are tick checks, which uh, often require the help of others. It's not... Um, uh, a prevention practice that you can often do on your own. Um, but prevention practices also include repellents, um, knee-high socks, tucking your pants into socks, uh, wearing a hat when you go out. Uh, some avoid grass altogether. Um, others spray their yard with pesticides. Um, then when you're coming back inside from being outdoors, putting clothes in the dryer after coming inside is a prevention practice that some use. And then uh, more and more common is to bathe after coming inside. Um, of course, you know, the most effective way to prevent Lyme disease would be to com completely avoid uh, natural spaces altogether. But uh, interestingly, even for those most concerned about Lyme and other tick-borne diseases, that option really seems to be off the table. Um, yeah, so kind of an and, interesting and that's off, there. And that's off the table. Um, why? You've got, you introduce a really sort of an interesting um, con conceptual term here, um, an epidemiology of affect. That's right. Um, so I think that is uh, exactly where an epidemiology of affect um comes into play and particularly its relationship to what I call an American aesthetic of nature. Um, so in this chapter, which I call preventing Lyme, uh, I begin by uh, going back and taking a historical look at the production of this aesthetic of nature in the U S um, environmental historian, Roderick Nash uh, has called nature quote, the basic ingredient of American culture. Uh, and following that idea, I trace how since really the 19th century, nature and exposure to it, right, not just the idea of it, but being in it, um, have come uh, to be not only about a good and beautiful life, um, but also about a healthier one. Um, I think at the same time, it's important to note here that an often overlooked aspect of the construction of nature's aesthetic and really the conservation and preservation of natural space, spaces sort of more generally has also been accompanied by um, the deliberate and coordinated exclusion of people of color. Um, so as a result of this, nature uh, in its broadest sense conceives to be, um, continues to be perceived um, and experienced as what uh, sociologist Elijah Anderson calls a white space. Um, Dorsetta Taylor, who's here at the University of Michigan, um, describes how, you know, despite the fact that people of color were integral to building national and state parks, um, including members of the U.S. Army's all-black regiments, um, who were the first backcountry rangers and built Yosemite's first national mark trail, um, they were also systematically excluded from these outdoor areas and, of course, faced harassment and bodily harm when they attempted to visit them. So the violence of this legacy is important to, um, to bring attention to and to recognize that it persists. So 
this reality has been articulated in a range of somewhat recent popular articles like why America's parks are so white. There's another one called The Unbearable Whiteness of Hiking and How to Solve It. Um, that coupled with uh, a survey conducted by the National Park Service uh, in 2000 found that uh, non-whites were more than three times as likely as whites to say that parks were not safe to visit. So this all kind of brings us back to an um, epidemiology of affect. Um, Traditionally, right, we think of epidemiological explanations for disease and its incidents um, among particular populations as based on sort of a statistical analysis of demographic and um, socioeconomic factors. But I think Lyme disease makes a compelling case uh, for the role of affect in the both incidence and distribution of tick-borne disease. So um, understanding how people navigate the tension really between their competing feelings of affection for, but also aversion to na- nature helps to explain um, who gets Lyme disease and why. Um, it also helps to explain why uh, Lyme disease prevention, going back to prevention practices, really proves to be so challenging, right? Since the primary risk for getting um, Lyme, which is exposure to nature, is often valued as a personal and sort of collective benefit. Um, For many of the folks I spent time with during my field work, uh, many of whom uh, sort of lived in and admired um, the the beauty of nature that surrounded them, uh, the salience of both nature's aesthetic, uh, its health and its affective dimension sort of made possible this idea um, of risk worth taking. uh, or what um, social psychologist Paul Slavic would call um, acceptable risk, right? It transformed uh, risky behavior into sort of noble and courageous action that was worth taking. Um, I think I would be remiss not to, again, um, bring attention here to the racial dimension of Lyme disease. Um, so all 34 of the patients I formally interviewed were white. Um, and this is this is consistent with a shared perception that Lyme disease is less common among African Americans. Um, it's also highlighted in uh, a, a study um, done by the CDC in 2002 that found that the incident rate uh, for Lyme disease among um, white Americans is approximately 11 times greater than it is for African Americans. So a prevailing assumption about um, Lyme's racial disparities is that it can be attributed to um, as we've mentioned, differences in risk of a residential ex- exposure. Um, the thought is that peri-domestic exposure is one of is is highly correlated um, with risk of Lyme disease. Um, but the one study that explicitly examined Lyme's racial disparities, uh, it sampled a rural Lyme endemic area in Maryland that had a larger than national average of African American residents, and it concluded that there were discrepancies that could not be explained by area of residence risk alone. And in fact, among other possible causes, the authors of the study suggested that the assumption among clinicians themselves that Lyme disease is relatively rare in African-Americans could itself be one contributing factor. So this assumption that Lyme is relatively rare in African-Americans, I think, coupled with the fact that medical students and residents are often not trained to diagnose rashes on patients of color, and then in cumulative addition to the structural violence of reduced access to healthcare, broad insufficient um, information dissemination. And then more recently, what Donna Ann Davis um, in her groundbreaking and award-winning new book, 
um, reproductive justice, racism, pregnancy, and premature birth, what she calls medical racism, I think together all of these likely help to explain um, the invisibility of individuals of color within the Lyme landscape. So, um, but certainly the, the, um, the perspective, the patient's perspective um, re- com- comes in here when you're, st- you're talking about prevention, right? Um, because uh, pe- people view, um, view the risks as being sort of like worth taking, um, and so in the next chapter, you, you move into talking about, um, patients' experiences of Lyme as a, a contested illness. And, um, I'm, I'm glad that we sort of qualified who the patients are that are doing the speaking in this next, um, section. Um, and, um, you, I identified three themes that they tended to talk about suffering, survival, and surfeit. And I, I wondered if you could just um, tell us a little bit about the themes and maybe give us an example of a, a patient story that, that you collected while doing your research. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the challenges of this chapter, um, which I call Living Lyme, was to convey sort of the, the striking range of ways that Lyme diseases live. Um, in the end, I narrowed it down and chose to tell the stories of five patients, uh, a mental health practitioner, um, a business professional, a teacher, a college student, and a self-described homemaker. Um, and together, uh, in their totality, these stories um, describe sort of the multiplicity of ways that Lyme disease is experienced. Um, but like you mentioned, they also highlight what I found were sort of three common and interrelated themes um, among the patients I spent time with. Um, for patients with all contested illnesses and um, Lyme disease in particular, a common source of suffering um, beyond that just of their own bodily experience is not being believed. And this happens as often um, by loved ones as by strangers. Um, So for these patients, um, survival, the other theme, is really as much of a question of, of social survival and adaptation as it is about just sort of the bodily imperative of being able to make it through a day. Um, And the third and final theme, surfeit. Um, So Lyme disease is understood to primarily affect those above and well above the national poverty level. Um, Of course, this doesn't uh, represent the full range of patients experienced with Lyme disease. Um, Of the 34 patients I formally interviewed, 13 were low to middle income and they were struggling to pay their medical bills. Um, But the perception that Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease in particular um, is a disease of the wealthy, I think is perhaps just as important as whether it actually is because it it really affects how those both inside and outside the Lyme world perceive the experience of Lyme disease. Um, So here I I give particular attention um, to how the perception and experience of relative privilege affects illness experiences. Um, So, right, to give you a better sense of these themes, I thought I'd read um, a story of a patient um, that I call Barbara. I met Barbara at her home in Connecticut, a big but not ostentatious house nestled nestled in verdantly green woods and with enough distance between the next house that it gave the impression of seclusion. Barbara opened her front door and I stepped across across its threshold from a a humming sun-filled porch to a quiet, still, and sparsely decorated foyer. Half-packed boxes signaled a home in transition. 
with her shoulders arched slightly forward and one hand holding her cardigan together. Barbara led me to her living room, where we sat on a floral patterned couch surrounded by photos of her family and her three daughters. Her face was pale, made paler by the highlighted bangs that framed it, and her cinched lips and taut skin gave her the appearance of being at once aged and youthful. Unlike other interviews, ours unfolded slowly and tentatively, as Barbara, soft-spoken and quick to avert her eyes, established her narrative's rhythm. Barbara's story began 11 years prior to our interview with a summer flu and sore throat that did not get better. When it got to the point of being unbearable, she went to her primary care physician, who prescribed her antibiotics. The antibiotics made her feel, quote, really sick and achy with vomiting and diarrhea. But then she got better and remained better for a year until she started to experience a range of what she described as neurological symptoms, including panic attacks, anxiety, depression, insomnia, and tingling on her head. She again returned to the doctor, who this time prescribed her antidepressants. She recalled, but I got home and I thought about it, and I said, nothing in my life has changed. Something is wrong with me. Barbara spoke to her neighbor, who had, quote, been sick with Lyme for 10 years, and her neighbor told her that, quote, all her symptoms were Lyme. It was a conversation that changed her life. On the recommendation of her neighbor, Barbara sought out Lyme literate treatment. Under the care of two successive Lyme literate practitioners, she took oral antibiotics for two years, which intermittently upset her stomach and also exacerbated her symptoms through what she was told was a Herxheimer reaction. In 2002, Barbara transferred to a third Lyme literate physician who, after hearing Barbara's history, immediately put her on nine months of intravenous antibiotics. Unlike her previous antibiotic treatments, these antibiotics made her feel, quote, 99.9% better until 2003 when she had to discontinue them because of a clogged Lyme. Since 2003, and having never again felt as good as she did then, Barbara had been on a combination of oral antibiotics. In 2006, she transferred to a fourth Lyme literate physician who, whose approach she described as similar to a previous physician, except that, quote, he uses natural protocols, so that's kind of nice to get away from antibiotics. Recently, however, because of financial difficulties and facilitated by her current physician's expanded toolbox and medical modalities, she had switched to an herbal regimen known as the Cowden Protocol, used by Lyme patients who prefer more natural methods by those with fewer financial resources, or by those who can no longer tolerate antibiotics, the Cowden Protocol was developed by an allopathic physician to treat chronic Lyme disease and includes 14 herbal tinctures that are often taken in a highly regulated manner for no less than two months, but often for as long as four to six months. Barbara explained, quote, My husband's in construction and work is slow. We pay our own health insurance, and we, when we go to the Lyme doctors, you have to pay out of pocket. And then we have a high deductible, so my dad and daughter and I are just doing herbal stuff right now. Like many Lyme patients I spoke with, Barbara felt better when she was on antibiotics. For example, she was able to sleep through the night, had fewer panic attacks, and experienced reduced joint pain. But the relief was neither permanent nor sustainable, and her symptoms began to return when she stopped taking them. After 11 years of treatment, Barbara continued to be plagued by disabling panic attacks. During our interview, she described a recent one that was so severe that she had to pull over at a gas station on her drive home. Her anxiety and her susceptibility to fatigue also made it impossible for her to work. She explained, I am very sensitive to stress. Like if I would try to work a job, the stress of just working the job, I would come home all achy. I haven't worked since I got sick and I need to work and I want to work and it's frustrating because I don't know if I will ever be able to work. Like sitting at a desk all day, you think you are just sitting there doing 
they're not doing anything, but just the stress just wipes your whole body out. As bad as her own struggle had been, however, she said that it did not match the suffering of watching her daughter struggle with Lyme disease. Like many patients I interviewed, Lyme disease had for Barbara become a family affair. Within a couple years of beginning treatment for her own illness, Barbara's daughters began developing symptoms that ranged from brain fog to fatigue to intermittent fevers. Her eldest daughter had been the sickest and had recently transferred to a local community college from a state university so that she could live at home. Although her daughter felt better than she had the year before, both she and Barbara worried how the stress of college would continue to affect her, since in the past it had taken such a toll that she, quote, just has to stop because she feels like she is going to die, like her body can't go on anymore. Together, Barbara and her daughter were an important source of support for each other, but aware that she was a stereotype of what many mainstream physicians envision when they refer to chronic Lyme patients, female, anxious, depressed, with no history of having had objective signs of Lyme disease, and with repeated negative serology, Barbara not only felt misunderstood, but was also fearful that she and her daughter would never be cured. For the moment, she was just looking forward to moving out of her too big house that she no longer had the energy to care for. Wow. Anything more you wanted to say about patients' experiences? Um, Because we started to get in, with Barbara's story, you started to get into a little bit um, the notion of treatment and the different types of treatment she sought. So um, I just, I guess I just, I want to make sure we're done talking about patients before we we jump into talking about treatment. Yeah, you know, I think um, her experience um, nicely captures sort of the interrelation of the three themes that we mentioned. Um, But of course, the four other stories um, describe symptoms um, and experiences that um, uh, aren't salient to Barbara's experience. Um, Some of those being uh, much less disabling and some of those being, um, much more disabling. So, uh, the focus here was really trying to, um, uh, tell stories that encompass that range and spectrum. So our, so our listeners can imagine, um, people suffering from Lyme disease who, um, are, are considerably, um, more disabled and and people who are are you know more um, integrated, I guess. So let, let let's let's now talk about how Lyme is treated. So that that term that you use, the Lyme literate physician, um, I I thought it was really I just found it interesting that 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 term is not that is not an anthropological theoretical uh, um, term that you're. In introducing that 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 people um that's people think of themselves as Lyme literate physicians right that's right that's a that's a self-described term um, um, that so, physicians and patients use and some uh physicians who are recognized by Lyme literate physicians um don't use that term for themselves but that tends to be uh, the most common term that um patients and physicians use um and of course uh it uh, um, can be an upsetting term to uh, for mainstream physicians that treat Lyme disease because um, they interpret it as meaning that they're not also literate in Lyme. So it is just one dimension of what's controversial about Lyme disease. Right. So, so what is a Lyme literate physician? What does it mean when somebody uses that term? Sure. I 
that's important to clarify. So um, earlier I, I mentioned that Lyme literate physicians um, argue that diagnostic tests are un unreliable. Um, so that's an important part um, uh, of, of the puzzle. Um, and that Lyme disease can persist beyond sort of what has become known as standard antibiotic treatment um, in the form of Lyme disease. So pro proponents of what um, could be called the Lyme literate standard of care, uh, they um, diagnose Lyme based on really a complex manifestation of symptoms. Um, and this is with or without a positive antibody test. Um, as you saw with um, Barbara's story, um, they treat patients uh, with both um, extended oral and intravenous antibiotics. And by doing this, they adhere to the clinical guidelines that um, are published by the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society, or ILADS, um, which is a professional organization that was created in opposition to the IDSA in 1999. Um, so then on the other side, uh, right, um, the mainstream side, proponents of the mainstream standard of care, uh, uh, they diagnose early Lyme by an erythema migrans rash, um, colloquially sort of popularly known as a bullseye rash, um, or a positive antibody test. Um, they treat for shorter duration, so uh, they treat with 10 to 21 days of antibiotics. And this is consistent with the clinical guidelines that were formulated um, by the Infectious Disease Society of America, the IDSA. In, um, in the chapter, um, Treating Lyme Disease, if we're thinking about sort of the the main differences between uh, the approach of Lyme literate physician um, and those of, of mainstream um, physicians. Um, um, I, I really argue that a more fundamental difference between these approaches is an, is an epistemic one um, that ultimately hinges on their relative approach to the diagnostic sim uh, significance of symptoms, as I've said, the, the subjective markers of disease. Um, and in particular, the diagnostic validity of interpreting Lyme symptoms as signs. Um, so like patients with other contested uh, illnesses, um, chronic Lyme patients often present in the clinic uh, with um, a range of what are perceived to be um, as nonspecific symptoms in the absence of signs. Um, and most mainstream physicians, when you ask them, they, they'll respond that um, uh, chronic Lyme patients clearly are suffering right? But they're just not suffering from, uh, from the persistence um, of active Lyme infection. Um, so for mainstream Lyme physicians and biomedical physicians more generally, these physical symptoms in the absence of what could be called observable pathophysiology, um, they're often, as I've mentioned, observed to have their genesis in the mind. They're understood to be psychosomatic. Um, so they're understand to be outside the purview of biomedical intervention and um, are often, la often labeled as medically unexplainable. Um, uh, for mainstream physicians who treat Lyme, uh, Lyme symptoms really only become meaningful um, and diagnostically meaningful in a sign that you know, can be visually verified, can be measured, um, and really compared across cases. Um, on the other hand, Lyme literate physicians um, their recognition of the symptom as really a legitimate basis for diagnosis opens up a space in which medically unexplained illness doesn't really exist and um, illness always has the potential to be explained. Um, I was struck early in my fieldwork um, by how Lyme literate practitioners were often lumped together by mainstream physicians 
um, with complementary and alternative medicine or CAM practitioners. I was confused by this because the Lyme literate physicians I had come in contact with, most of them were conventionally trained by medical physicians, um, some of whom were pretty uh, uh, circumspect about CAM therapies. Um, but as I moved forward in the project, I, I came to realize that because Lyme literate physicians embrace a symptom-based diagnosis that's really at odds with the mainstream paradigm, um, the practice of Lyme literate physicians, irrespective of whether they incorporate CAM therapies into their practice, some do and some don't, they tend to look like those of CAM practitioners um, and, and their attention to the diagnostic significance of patient symptoms. So um, a mainstream practitioner, just um, my next question was how to, you know, what is a, how does a Lyme literate physician treat, treat, treat a patient like this? And then how does a, how does that differ from a mainstream pa- practitioner? But it sounds like a mainstream practitioner just wouldn't treat them, just wouldn't see this as being a, a diagnosable medical problem, or maybe would refer them, would refer a patient to a psychiatrist or to complementary and alternative medicine. Is is that right? How how would a how do mainstream practitioners react to patients like Barbara? That's right. In fact, one uh, you know, limestream uh limestream <laughs> that would be a new a new word. A, a mainstream line physician that I spent time with and spoke with um you know, although he uh, was careful to say that he didn't subscribe to camp therapies, suggested that part of the problem is that um, uh, mainstream Lyme physicians like him haven't adequately um, recognized and treated patient symptoms. And that's part of the reason why patients have continued um, to seek care uh, um, beyond, um, beyond the mainstream. So you have these two perspectives, the perspective of the Lyme literate physician, the perspective of the mainstream practitioners, um, and they're both caught up in the rise of evidence-based medicine. Um, and towards the end of the book, you write that that evidence-based medicine has been described um, as, as a, a social movement, but also as a kind of paradigm shift. And when I read paradigm shift, I think... Thomas Kuhn. Um, and, and then the very end of the book concludes that, um, you know, your, that your hope is that th- these two interpretations of, of Lyme disease that you, you lay out so, um, so wonderfully in the book um, would, would not be incommensurate Right. And so I think of, you know, paradigms as just being incommensurable of being, you know, unable to be reconciled. Do you think that these two um, perspectives, paradigms, um, I don't or they're on on Lyme disease, are they is is there is there a way to to bring them together? It's a great question. So incommensurate um, is a word that a mainstream Lyme scientist I quote in the conclusion uses, and he believes that um, Lyme's, as he describes it, that Lyme's two interpretations, that they are incommensurate. You know, and I think after four decades of really hardened controversy, many on both sides would agree with this. Um, but I think one important commonality, um, like I mentioned, is that despite their difference, they're both very frustrated and deeply consent, um, discontent that you know, the controversy persists. Um, 
and and would like some sort of re- resolution. I mean, I think to circle back to the beginning our, of our interview, you know, when we talked about evidence-based medicine, I think another overlooked commonality and, and a central part of my argument is both sides' interest in an engagement um, with the scientific authority of evidence-based medicine, really an attempt to establish credibility. So um, evidence-based medicine, not an, as an example of uh, a, a paradigm that's limited, limited to one side and not to the other, but a paradigm that's shared and engaged with um, um, by both. So, you know, take, for example, the four randomized controlled trials that were conducted in the U.S. Um, on the benefits of extended antibiotic therapy for Lyme, Lyme disease. Um, these are trials that have gotten a lot of attention. Um, you know, they were intended to resolve dispute. But in the case of Lyme, they provided a means by, um, you know, which each camp through what uh, Joan Fujimura and Danny Chu have described as different styles of scientific practice um, has allowed them to really reinforce their respective standard of care. Um, So while mainstream physicians argue that the data from those studies show that long-term antibiotics have no benefit, Lyme literate physicians have argued that the data, in fact, from those studies demonstrate measurable improvement in fatigue. Um, one Lyme literate physician I interviewed kind of reflected on this and said, you know, we often quote from the same studies. It's how you interpret it. Um, this isn't unique. Sociologist Stephen Epstein um, has similarly, similarly found um, that because of what he calls, you know, interpretive flexibility and, that are built into scientific findings, that those findings often um, produce uncertainty in, in, instead of uh, uh, produce sort of the same certainty that they a- attempt to settle. Um, so I guess this reinforces um, um, the argument that I've already laid out um, about evidence-based medicine is that um, in sort of developing a, a particularly democratic and ecumenical appeal, it's really kind of provided a set of tools uh, with which a range of individuals can make claims to truth and expect to have that claim right become part of the debate. Um, I think this has had the unintended consequence of reinforcing and also amplifying pre-existing differences. Um, I think finally, I think sort of another point of perhaps future commonality um, uh, is is patient-focused and responsive medicine. Um, so biomedicine has increasingly turned to a, a patient-centered model and um this admirably attempts to take into account patients' preferences and needs and values. Um, but I think a big reason why patients with contested illnesses continue to seek out practitioners who work within a symptom-based diagnostic framework um, is that these practitioners, like I mentioned, recognize uh, patients' symptoms as diagnostically explainable. They take them seriously, and there's sort of an explanatory alignment between their medical practice, and patient symptomatic experience. Um, I think the challenge for biomedicine more generally and practitioners who work within a diagnostic framework um, that prioritize signs over symptoms, like mainstream line physicians, is really how to recognize and validate um, patient symptomatic experience, you know, since no matter how sophisticated our technology becomes, patients will always experience their ill health through their symptoms. Um, so, you know, I think the takeaway here is that patients with contested illnesses want their embodied experience to be taken seriously. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. Um, they want to be treated with empathy and kindness. And I think, you know, uh, during my fieldwork, interesting enough, despite the perception among mainstream physicians that 
Lyme patients are sort of wedded to their diagnosis, many of the patients I spent time with described how they didn't care what the diagnosis was, they just wanted to feel better. Um, and I was also told on several occasions when I asked, you know, what, what, what makes a good doctor? What makes a bad doctor? Um, I was told that good doctors weren't necessarily those that had, had all the answers, um, but were those who could admit that they didn't know what was going on and were just willing to work with the patient to try to figure things out. Um, so I think, you know, prioritizing empathy, particularly in medical school and residency training, and somehow, I don't know, incentivizing it in clinical practice could go a long way. Um, yeah, that could be a good, a good to, first step. To, to bridging the divide, That's I right. suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, Abby, we have taken up a lot of your time, um, and I, I, I so enjoyed the opportunity to read your book, um, and based on you know ten years of, of field work and being immersed in in these um, these heated debates. Um, now, are, are, what could you tell us what you're researching now? Is it more Lyme disease? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad you asked. I, I very recently um, pivoted from a, a project I'd planned on. Um, contaminated water in Michigan um, as sort of an extension of my environmental health interest. Um, and I hope to eventually make, make my way back to it, but I've pivoted to a project um, on COVID-19 and in particular what has become known as long COVID. Um, uh, you know, almost immediately after the pandemic's onset, patients began to describe this range of disabling symptoms um, that continued long after the acute phase was, uh, was over, um, these patients, they've come to describe themselves as long haulers. Um, you know, they've mobilized an online advocacy um, and support group through a platform called The Body Politic and um, a long-term biomedical research project has been launched at the University of California, um, San Francisco to study um, what um, they're calling long COVID. Um, Ed Young from The Atlantic has written two wonderful articles about this topic. Um, and one of these articles, he describes how a physician at the Mount Sinai Center, um, uh, they've created a, a, a center for post-COVID care, um, has observed that most of the long haulers that he, his name is Dr. Petrino, has surveyed um, are women uh, with an average age of 44 and um, uh, are formally fit and healthy. So in short, very similar to the profile of those with contested illnesses uh, like chronic Lyme disease. So I'll be spending all next academic year exploring this further um, for hopefully a future book project. So stay tuned. Well, that sounds like a fascinating perspective study that we, we want to hear that people would want to hear about soon. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, Abby, Abby, thank you so much for, for sharing your time and your expertise with us. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure.